If you're under the age of 40, you likely aren't going to remember any of what I'm about to tell you from the experience of the American televangelist. If you're under the age of 50, some of it will probably ring a broad remembrance, but if you're my age, in your 50s or older, you know that the televangelist scandals of the 1980s created a wave of anti-religious sentiment that I, I think the world is now surfing at a, at a pretty high level. And, uh, and it was justified criticism. I, I have to tell you that uh, it, it was the last time an evangelist, a scandal about an evangelist, was on the cover of Time magazine. I, I don't know if you recall the, the Reverend Jimmy Swagger. You can still see him on TV every now and again at the far end of your cable dial. But there were three evangelists that were spoken of in those times that had scandals. One was Jimmy Swaggart. The other was um, Jim Baker. A lesser-known evangelist encountering scandal within the same denomination, the Assemblies of God, and in the same way uh, was a man by the name of Marvin Gorman. I want to tell you a little story. It's funny because if you are in the movie business, if you're one of the ones here in our church one of the throng in Los Angeles who is writing your first movie or script. I've got an idea for you, and it comes right from the pages of American contemporary history, and here it is. A guy named Marvin Gorman had grown his Assembly of God church to roughly 6,000 people. Down the road, though, there was a man by the name of Jimmy Swaggart who was dwarfing what he was accomplishing. And the two of them had an interesting, if not bitter, rivalry. Uh, some would have said that Jimmy Swaggart had it out for Marvin Gorman, that for whatever reason, even though his ministry was a good four times the size of Gorman's, Gorman rubbed him the wrong way, and he kept an eye on him. Uh, Swaggart's ministry was on every TV set in America at one time, translated into 15 languages. Gorman had a televangelism ministry that was sort of bumping along. His budget overall was $4.5 million in 1980, not bad. But Swaggart's was already in $100 million territory. But still, something bothered Swaggart about Gorman. So, Swaggart had uh, people looking into what was going on and called, summoned Marvin Gorman to his mansion in Louisiana, and, and Gorman was forced to confess that he'd had an affair. Actually, Swaggart had confronted him about several accusations, and Gorman privately confessed to him, yes, I had an affair, I repented, I've told my wife left thinking it was just between two brothers, and the next thing you know, Swaggart had told the Assemblies of God leadership about it, and Marvin Gorman's world came crashing down. But Marvin didn't go quietly, because just a few years later, Marvin Gorman, some believe, because somehow a photographer was following around Jimmy Swaggart and watched Jimmy Swaggart walk into a hotel room with a prostitute, and then got on the phone with Marvin Gorman, who showed up real quickly to the hotel. This is true. This, is re this really happened. I'm not making this up. This isn't a pretend script. He showed up and on the spot confronted Jimmy Swaggart and said, 
you're committing a sin. And he encouraged him to confess that sin. And when Swagger didn't reveal it to his church or to his denomination, Marvin Gorman presented the photos to the assemblies of God. And within the next few months, Jimmy Swaggart's ministry had crumbled to the ground too. Oh, and as a kicker, uh, Marvin sued Jimmy and won a $10 million defamation suit. This is the kind of thing that was going on in the late 80s, and you can see why my generation birthed a bunch of young people who thought, why do I want anything to do with any of this? This is just weird. It also makes for what sounds like a lifetime like television movie or something. It's, it's, it's just B-roll, and just B-level enough to be a movie that would be on cable television. Envy, jealousy, comparison, fairness. You think this is part of the world, but is it really supposed to be part of the church? No, the answer is. But guess what? It's not a new thing. It's been happening since the beginning of the church. Ralph Turnbull, in a book that a group of pastors and I have been reading called A Minister's Obstacles, says this, the jealousy which besets God's servants is that which is poisonous and foul, born of self-love. When someone else in Christian service receives more approbation and attention than we attract, there may be the stirrings of this evil spirit. How dangerous is this lust to the preacher? You know, in case you've been listening to some that have been railing against the contemporary church and saying, it's just not like the church in the book of Acts. I want you to know, as we study Acts in 2019 and 2020, you're going to find out that the church in the book of Acts in the first century was pretty warped too. We're all just broken and sinful, working our way through this world. And Peter demonstrates this as well as anybody in today's text. We're going to see the rock of the church fresh off being remarkably restored after a very public blowing it still evidence this nature that says, this isn't fair. What about me? How come he gets to do that and I don't get to do that? This is what's in our text today. If you recall our reading, Peter has been miraculously restored. Remember, big blow it. Denied Jesus three times. Jesus reminds him of this and then says, in addition to forgiving him, I got a mission for you. And he tells Peter of this mission. He says, you, when you were younger, did what you wanted, but when you're older, people are going to dress you up for yourself. They're going to take you where you do not want to go. And basically what he was saying to Peter was, this is the way you're going to die. Very specifically, that this was the way that Peter was going to glorify Jesus in his death. Peter absorbs this. And then is walking along the road and sees the gospel of John writer John and turns and says, what about this guy? I mean, if I'm going to die, what about him? And and then Jesus responds to him by saying, hey, if it's my will that he sticks around till I come or if it's my will that he never dies, what business is that of yours? You're supposed to follow me. Now, John clarifies that this didn't mean that he wasn't going to die. Jesus was just trying to make the point that it's really not ours to wonder why. All right? Ours is but to follow. And in Peter's case, die. And in the world in which we live, 
not being the masters of our faith or the captains, uh, you know, of our soul or the captains of our faith and the masters of our soul. It doesn't matter. We don't like not being in charge. We don't like being the ones who aren't following the path we choose for ourselves. Peter's main concern is whether he's the only one who's going to have to suffer by following Jesus. It's an issue of fairness. What's the path you have for, for John? Is it fair? Am I getting what I deserve? He's already comparing himself. He's already envious of what he perceives as an easier Christian walk that some might have. Theodore Roosevelt famously said, compassion was the thief of joy. C.S. Lewis, even more famously in Mere Christianity, contended that comparison was the root of the quintessential human sin of pride. Lewis wrote, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Before we can appreciate Peter's most recent expression of our sinful nature, we have to review what we studied last week and that Peter had suffered this unbelievably public humiliation. I mean, when you stand in front of a bunch of people who are your equals and you say, I'm better than all of you, even if you all fail, I will die with Jesus. And then you deny him three times. And then you have to come back, and when you see your Savior face to face, in front of all your friends, he asks you three times, do you love me, to remind you. Remember, we, you said you were going to stand taller than all these cats, and here you are. And then have to receive a restoration and a call, all of that born because Peter had to know that his self-promoting, self-glorifying, and really self-dependence that would make him think he could do life without Jesus was just mere foolishness and that he needed Jesus. Jesus compassionately restores him, which is miraculous and great news for all of us because if, if Jesus can see this fool and see the good in him and still say, you know, I love you. You're going to go ahead and lead this band of people that are going to take over the world and change the, the, the course of history in my name. I love what D.A. Carson said along these lines. The fact that Peter was clearly forgiven by Jesus and given new responsibilities amounting to, amounting to apostleship, despite his total denial of his Lord, this can give genuine hope to Christians today who feel that they have denied Jesus and that this is unforgivable. He calls only for our repentance and our love. It is with this sense of hope, with this sense of knowing that Jesus loves us and that He's merciful, that I'm hoping that today what we can do is peer down deep into our hearts and see some things that would otherwise make us uncomfortable about ourselves that are a bit ugly, maybe. But like Peter, we don't, we don't have to be afraid of that. We, because of Christ, if you are a child of God, you've been made His child, loved by Him, adored by Him, forgiven by Him through the sacrifice of Christ. You now, we have the 
joy of being able to look in there and not be scared that that would put us off from God or make us unacceptable to the Father. As it was with Peter and John, Jesus is here to throw his arms around us and nurse us back to spiritual health through complete and total forgiveness through his blood on the cross. And if you find yourself prone to comparison or jealousy or envy, if you find yourself discontent and all of that generally born in response to what we see God doing for others or not doing for us, um, you can at least take comfort in the universality of this struggle. The person sitting next to you has felt this way too. The apostle Peter, the rock, feels and felt that way. We all experience that because it's the nature of being selfish and sinful. It's part of the brokenness of all of our humanity. However, today I want to look below the surface at why we feel this way. And it usually is because we forget two things about Jesus. Certainly was the case with Peter. And the first of these is this. Jesus is God and he knows what he's doing. Now, this is the initial message of the Gospel of John. We are one message from finishing this marathon study of the Gospel of John. All right, the first verse of John is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have to, for 21 chapters and a year and a half, remember Jesus is God, although all along the way, he's reminded us of this. And here he is again, reminding Peter, you know, I got it. Thanks, though. You know, uh, I, whatever I got for John, I got for John, and whatever I have for you, I have for you. Peter saw him and said to Jesus, what about this man? I just think it's remarkable and so comforting to me as a guy who often feels like I'm clearly in the wrong vocation uh, because I, I don't feel morally or spiritually fit to be a pastor. And when I see Peter go, like right after the resurrection and this glorious restoration, evidence this kind of, what about him? I think, oh, I would fit in with him. Peter and I could have a beer. That, we would get along well. We really would. Jesus says this stern rebuke to him, really. He says, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? There are other translations that actually say, what business is that of yours? Amazing. Jealousy and comparison call into question both the wisdom and sovereignty of Jesus. John and Peter were very different people. So if you think about it, they wouldn't have the same call. They have different characters. They have different character flaws. There's something about the wisdom of God that knows this person is best suited for this, this person is best suited for that. This person has had these experiences in life that have shaped them, and this person has had these experiences in life that have shaped them this way, and I know what I'm doing. Some of us will be wealthy and have the responsibility of supporting the poor and giving generously to the community. 
And I got news for you. If you are wealthy, and I don't know it because I don't want to know, God has called you to be generous. The gift of giving is not an option for you. That's why God's given you all this. Like Abraham, you've been blessed to be a blessing. Some of us have been called to moderate means. And you might think to yourself, well, how come I can't be the one with the gift of giving? I'd like to be that guy, you know, that girl. As we mentioned last week, I don't think most people of moderate means have any real idea about how painful it can be to be wealthy. I have a friend who's wealthy, and I have a friend who's wealthy and famous, and they both, they both communicated to me that it radically reshaped their world and created a vast amount of isolation. What happened was is every time they'd go out with friends and family for dinner, the check would come, and everybody would at the same time go, Imagine what it would be like to have everybody staring at you now every time the check came. Almost entitled. The number of people that crawled out of the woodwork to ask them for money, to challenge them to invest in what they were doing. They couldn't, they, they couldn't and can't discern often who loves them for them and who is working them for their money. And so they end up spending a lot of time alone or with other rich people. If you ever wondered why rich and famous people kind of end up like packing together, it's because at the very base level, they know you're not working me. You at least are trying to love me for who I am, and it doesn't seem like you're soaking me for something. The same would be said for people of great influence in the culture. Do you really want that? Are you the person that says, as I have at times in my life, I want to be that guy? You know who got the most death threats in the world last year? Well, obviously, President Trump. But you say, well, that's because he's him. <laughs> but five years ago, you know who got the most death threats in the world? Barack Obama. This is what happens when you're the most powerful person in the world, when you're the leader of the free world. You become the target. Half the country almost hates you, voted against you. That's what you're signing up for. The higher up the leadership totem pole you get, the more disliked you're going to be by people on the other side. If you're a CEO of a three-person company, everybody loves you. If you're the CEO of a 3,000-person company, you're going to have a great number of people in your company that hate your guts and are envious of what you have and are bitter and are going to take it out on you because you're the person at the top of the food chain. You really want that? Say, yes. Do you really think you can handle that? I can assure you that after many, many, many hours of counseling and interaction with coaches and people, I'm fairly sure the Lord hasn't made me for that kind of pressure. I can say that while simultaneously saying to all of you, there are times where I wonder, God, do you know what you're doing with my life? And God reminds me through the Word, I got it. I know what I'm doing. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The, the key to remaining at peace about 
our role, I've learned, whatever your role in this world may be, is remembering that God is both wise and sovereign. And here's a comforting thought that I'll just share with you from my own experience. This is how I combat this proclivity to compare myself and think, how come and why and do you know what you're doing? And that is this. I don't know what you in your secret world are aspiring to. I don't know what it is that you feel like you need in order to make your life exactly what you think it should be. But I can assure you that if God wants you to be wherever it is you think you want to be, that there's no one person that can keep you from it. You can say, I want to be the president of my company. Great. But everybody on the board hates me. And you could stir about that and be bitter about that and be frustrated and think to yourself, you know what, everybody's against me. I'll never get where I want to go. And I'd tell you, it wouldn't matter if everyone on that board hated your guts. If God wants you to be president, the God of all creation is going to make sure you're president of that company. You say, I, I have a relationship and this person, I, wh- how come this won't develop? How come that Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful hasn't come along? And I want to assure you today with as much compassion as I can that if God wants you to be married, there's no person in the world, including yourself, that's going to, make that, that's going to keep that from happening. It's, it's just not possible for the God of creation to go, oh, I'm so frustrated. My will is being thwarted. And the scriptures testify to that. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says, says this, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. One of the stories in this book, A Minister's Obstacles, is about the late Dr. F.B. Meyer, who was a Baptist preacher. And I have to relate this story to you because it spoke to me in some meaningful ways and hopefully it will encourage you too. The late Dr. F.B. Meyer, when he first went to the Northfield Conference, which was this fairly big Baptist gathering of their day, he attracted great crowds. People thronged to hear his special addresses. But later, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan came to Northfield And the people were lured by a brilliant Bible study leader in Meyer, in Campbell uh, Campbell Morgan, and deserted Meyer. Meyer confessed a liability to jealousy as he ministered to a smaller group. And this is where I, I want you to hear what he said. The only way I can conquer my feeling, he said, is to pray for him daily, which I do. And then Turnbull writes, magnanimity is the grace which can bloom if nurtured like that, and this way a Christian man triumphs. I love not just that he had a strategy for combating it, but that he knew God's grace enough to be able to admit it. A super prominent Baptist minister of his day saying, I struggle with envy because this guy's ministry is thriving and it's made me feel small, but I'm going to pray for him every day. King Solomon knew something about wealth and who has and who doesn't. He had a life of wealth and a life of foolish choices, and 
at the conclusion of his life in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Solomon wrote this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Friend, take comfort. Jesus is God, and He knows what He's doing. Second thing we'll forget this is this, and that is that Jesus is good, and His will is always best. Jesus says in verse 23, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This tells us a couple different things. One is Jesus, the resurrected Savior, is one with the Father and the Spirit. And as God has ordained all things that come to pass, he has a will it won't be thwarted. He has the authority to say to your life, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen for you. I, I promise this is the path and that it's going to be a good thing. You'd think that after all Peter had seen and witnessed, that if Jesus told him what the will of God was for his life, that Peter would have rejoiced, knowing that no matter what it may seem like at the moment, if Jesus is involved, in the end, he'll be glorified and Peter will be glad. I mean, Peter just experienced this in the most remarkable way. He had the, like, the total disillusionment of Jesus' death, his denial, the hiding from the mob, the wondering, was Jesus really the Messiah that he said he was and that I told everybody he was, that fear that what a fool have I been, and then the resurrection of Christ and that resurgence of joy and then seeing the Savior and confessing his sin and being restored. You'd think after that he'd been like, man... When Jesus tells me I'm going to do this, this is going to be one heck of a roller coaster. There are going to be highs and there are going to be lows. And in the end, I'm going to pull into the station and go, woohoo, I want to do that again. But that wasn't what Peter did. Peter said, what about him? You see, Peter suffers from the same problem that you and I have, and that is he has a very, very short memory of God's goodness God never gives us more than we're capable of handling or less than what will bring about the greatest amount of glory for His kingdom. Peter's call was to die. Now, that doesn't mean your call is going to be to be a martyr for the kingdom of God. Some will die. Some are dying as we speak around the globe for their profession of faith in Christ as Savior. Not everybody has the religious freedoms of a Western country. But some will die. And anybody who would tell you differently that your life by Scripture's declaration that everybody is destined for health and wealth and a life of comfort is selling you something or they are seriously flawed in their interpretation of Scripture. Because in some way, Jesus said we're all called to die we're called to give our agenda over to Him, to submit our lives to Him. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus told His disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Be mindful that just because Jesus' journey for your life might be filled with challenges and hardships, that doesn't mean that His purpose for you in this life isn't going to yield joy in this life, but certainly for eternity. Inferred from this passage, and what Jesus clearly wants us to see, is that there is an eternity of life that exists beyond the 90 plus years that some of us might have the privilege of living on this earth. That for eternity, in eternity, whether it's in heaven or on the new earth or whatever your eschatological position is, clearly will be present with Jesus for all eternity without pain, without struggle, without tears, without all of the battles with sin that we deal with here. And what he would want us to see is that an investment of our life in his will for us, his plan for us, not only yields the joy of knowing what we know in this life, but the joy of eternal remembrance that Jesus has guided us through all of this and provided all of this for us. This is the X factor for the believers. God's specific purpose for our life here is given to us in light of all that we will gain for eternity knowing that we followed Jesus faithfully. Maybe your life will be less cumbersome or burdensome physically than others, but then maybe you'll have more emotional struggles than the rest. Focusing on others won't help us know the joy of walking in God's specific mission for us. Instead, comparison will rob us of the joy. In the Desiring God world, one of the writers is John Bloom. He wrote this recently to a group of graduates. Always remember, Jesus wants you to be you. He wants you to become a more sanctified, excellent you. But He doesn't want you to be anyone else. You bear God's image in a unique way. You have a unique calling on your life. You'll be tempted all along the way to compare yourself with others. Sometimes you will feel the pride of superiority. Sometimes you will feel the pride of inferiority. In all of your comparisons, Jesus' word to you will be, what is that to you? You follow me. But friends, in order to do what Jesus says and follow him, we have to fix our eyes on him. And think of how much stumbling and falling you would do on a rocky path if you weren't facing forward to the person in front of you leading the way. You, you and I, to follow Jesus, we have to actually have our heads up looking to Jesus. Key to our survival as the people of God is making the time to focus our hearts and minds on Christ. And it's only possible if we recognize our need for Him and recognize that in the absence of remembering Him, remembering His perspective about the world around us, will we be able to battle the day's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual challenges. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3, 
truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, the psalmist knows what we know, that it's easy to forget that God is good. And for us to remember that, we have to commit ourselves to the means of grace. God has very specifically given us some things that will serve to remind us of His merciful, sovereign kindness over all things. It's our own time of reading the Scriptures, the Word of life, the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is there for your use. It's According to the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, useful in teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, it's, it's God-breathed. It's there for your use. It's the bread of life. When you have prayer, your conversation with Jesus, both in the closet by yourself on your knees and corporately with your brothers and sisters, whether it's in your community group or whether it's at a prayer meeting or here on Sunday mornings, it's... I have to talk with God. I have to make time for that. I have to find time for that. And speaking of Sundays, bless you for being here this morning. And it is God's blessing on your life. Church is not what you do to make God like you more. Going to worship on Sundays is, according to the Scriptures, not optional. It's the means by which God restores your soul, whether that's here at Prism Church or somewhere else that you attend it's the means by which God feeds you through the teaching of Scripture, through the worshiping of Him with others, through the taking of the Lord's Supper. These are the means of grace, and to deny them is to deny yourself. It's to neglect your soul. To ignore them is to disobey Jesus' call to follow Him. He certainly found time for Scripture and prayer. We would follow him into that. You know, I've planted two churches. Prison would be the second. And then before that, I was a, a youth minister. And I started the youth ministry in this church. And it was the first youth ministry they'd ever had. And so all along those years, I, starting stuff, I know what it feels like to experience wondering whether or not what I was doing was ever going to get traction and last or exist. And so I've known that anxiety. But I've also known the experience of the, the, the fearful eye of the local minister who thinks that whatever it is that I'm involved with is somehow or another going to threaten his turf. I've experienced the pain of that, having somebody say, well, you're kind of infringing on my territory. And, and how bad that made me feel. But more than either of those two feelings, the overriding experience I've had, sadly, is the sad reality of my own struggle to compare myself with others. Uh, like you, I want to be known and loved. But the poison of popularity began to course through my veins as early as I can remember. Elementary, middle school high school. And it stayed in my system until God 
did a, a surgery of sorts on me 10 years ago to help me to see that it was killing me. And so for the last 10 years, we've been working, God, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> me and a couple of friends who are counselors who see me for free, on, ex- on exposing this, this poison and then by God's grace and His sanctifying work, trying to extract it from my soul. And so I invite you today to join me in repenting of our collective sense that we're going to find our value in what it is that we do or what others think of us or in what we have compared to others that results often in jealousy or envy, but instead to look to Jesus and remember that He is God and He knows what He's doing and that He is good and His will is always best. Let us pray.